0: Good morning, everybody. Uh, Go ahead and turn your Bibles, please, to Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13 is where we'll be today. We're going to look at like most of the chapter, like 13 to the end. Um, In our scripture reading, we'll we'll start at verse uh, 42. Uh, While you're you're going there, uh, let me set the stage here just a little bit as I'm accustomed to doing. Um, so when I, for, for, I'm not trying to put a habit into your life that I think is good, but for better or for worse, um, when I get up in the mornings, one of the things that I do relatively early on is uh, check my Facebook feed. I can feel the judgment over this crowd, No, know, I'm, I'm kidding, I'm kidding, so um actually, I feel the resonation. You just don't want to acknowledge it as much as I am, probably. It's okay. It's okay. So, uh, so I checked my Facebook feed, and the last um, several days, uh, I've been getting, you know, the first thing that, often the first thing that happens in my Facebook feed is a picture from, like, my past, right? Some sort of memory, and uh, because eventually, I got really good at only posting, like, happy things on Facebook, um, a lot of the things that I see in the memory of, uh, in my first morning are, like, things that make me smile a little bit. So, this, For whatever reason, the algorithm of my life has decided that, um, that I need to see pictures of a trip that our family took this time, this week, three years ago. And it was honestly one of the most incredible trips of our life, um, all of us, our, all the, our six lives. Um, so through a variety of means by you know, saving overtime, working a couple of extra jobs and whatever, we took three weeks off of uh, work. And uh, two in three weeks off of school, um, and we we cruised from Fort Lauderdale to Portugal to Belgium to to the Netherlands to Copenhagen, Denmark, and then spent a week in France, and which was the worst week ever. Don't ever go to Paris. And then we flew <laughs> back um, to to home. It was amazing. I'm just going to tell you, if you can ever make this happen, it was absolutely amazing for, for a whole host of reasons. But so now every morning when I get up, I see a picture of where I was pre-pandemic three years ago, you know, living like the king of the world, uh, you know, like I belonged in the movie Titanic before Titanic happened. Like it was just, it was awesome. It, it, it changed, it, this, this is not, I'm not overstating it. It changed my life. It, it changed my life which is normally the way we look at travel. We, we look at those kinds of experiences, those, those we have saved up, we are, we are packing the house down, like we are, we are going, we're going to go see the world. And we look at a trip like that, and our expectation is that a trip that goes to see multiple countries on the other side of the planet in middle-class luxury is going to change my life is going to change our lives. We're coming to a place in the book of Acts in both our Sunday school lessons and then many Sundays over the next coming weeks where Paul's missionary journeys begin. And if you're savvy enough to kind of pull open the map in the back of your Bible or something like that and want to kind of take a deeper dive, what you'll find is that Paul goes on multiple journeys all throughout uh, Europe, and he's even trying to get to, to Spain, but he's, he's going all over the empire that he, can, that he can go to. And I'm sure, I'm sure, because I've read, I'm sure that it changed Paul's life, but the change that that trip had on Paul's life pales into comparison that that trip had on the world. The three journeys that you are going to read about over the next several weeks and months through the book of Acts, I'm sure they had an impact on Paul's life, but I'm more sure they had an impact on ours, that this this was a trip that changed the world rather than a trip around the world that changed Paul. So if you'll look with me through your Bible at the early part of this journey for Paul, uh, Acts chapter 13, verse 42, if you'll stand with me, let's read together. Acts chapter 13, verses 42 and following. As they were leaving, the people urged them to speak about these matters the following Sabbath. After the synagogue had been dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who were speaking with them and urging them to continue in the grace of God. Then, following the, Sabbath, the following Sabbath, almost the whole town assembled to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what Paul was saying, insulting him. Paul and Barnabas boldly replied, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. Since you rejected and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, we are turning to the Gentiles. For this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles, to bring salvation To the end of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they rejoiced and honored the word of the Lord, and all who had been appointed to eternal life believed. The word of the Lord spread through the whole region, but the Jews incited the prominent God fearing women and the leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their district. But Paul and Barnabas shook the dust off their feet against them. And went to Iconium, and the disciples were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. God, God. you you may be seated. So I want to give you just a little bit of backstory um, behind this this experience that Paul and Barnabas and others are having in Antioch. So if you look look over in verse 14, I I forgot to put my mark in. Look over at verse 14. You see where this journey is beginning for Paul, and, um, and you see that where Luke says in verse 14, they continued their journey from Perga, and they reached Pisidian Antioch. So that's a really short note. It's a, it's a little bit terse, um, and, and, if you're, and if you don't take the time, just do a little bit of geography look on your map, you'll miss the fact that that's like a crushing journey. Um, That's 100 miles across the Taurus mountain range. It's a barren path that was often uh, flooded by swollen mountain streams. There are bandits everywhere. Uh, The Romans historically had difficulty controlling this area for for crime. It's 3,600 feet up in elevation is where Antioch is um, for this, um, this Galatian colony city called Pisidian Antioch. Um, this, is history, this is a city with a long history. So the Seleucids, three 400 years prior to Paul being there, had conquered this land, and they shipped a whole bunch of Jewish people there to plant in this city. So that's why there's a heavy Jewish population there. So it was a really strategic place for Paul to be, but it was also a very challenging place for him to get to. So he needed to get there as it was strategic, and if the gospel was going to spread from this Jewish congregation that he wanted to speak to. But it cost him something to get there. But they got there. And you'll see all throughout the book of Acts that from time to time, Paul's and Barnabas' custom was to go straight into the Jewish synagogue in the city there. And so that's what they do here in Pisidian Antioch. Now, the synagogue for the Jewish people was not just a house of worship. So I want you to compare this to your own life a little bit with regards to the local church. Maybe even if you grew up in church, maybe you had this experience. So I grew up in a really small town, rural Mississippi, 3,000 people. And once I got involved in the life of the church, I got involved in the life of the church, right? So even this really hit peak as a teenager. So on Wednesday right after school, I was at the church. Um, On Sunday morning at 9 o'clock, I was in Sunday school, then then church, then pot roast, and then 3.30 on Sunday afternoon, I was back for ensemble, and then choir, and then snack supper and then training union or whatever we called it Rodney this morning at Sunday school and then evening worship and then snack Sunday night after church because acronyms are very important in Baptist life. And we just, you know, all the way through, like that was it. Every, every week that was it. And Saturday, at least once a month, something going on in the church. It was the center of my particular social life. But even that did not compare to how centered the synagogue was every day for a Jew back in Paul's day. So this is the reason why Paul and Barnabas went right into the synagogue, because it wasn't just a a house of worship. It was a house of worship, but it was the center of education. It was the center of justice. It was a social gathering place, and on and on and go. So if you were a Jew, you were there almost every single day. So if you were Paul and Barnabas, and you wanted to make contact with the Jewish community, and you wanted to share the good news of Jesus with the Jews, because Jesus was a Jew, it was a very natural thing for you to do to go to the Jewish synagogue. So that's where Paul went to share the gospel with them. Now, as we're going to see through the text, the account reads in such a way that there was that, that it suggests almost that Paul had arranged to speak. Right? Look at verse 15. After the reading of the law and the prophets, the leaders of the synagogue sent word to them, Paul and Barnabas, saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, now is the time. Uh, For you to speak. So, usually a synagogue just had one elder, and this person was responsible for the worship, and he would appoint people to do it. And so that's what he did with Paul here. And when Paul stood up to speak, as you're going to see through this sermon, he brought it. He brought it. So, I want us to take a look at Paul's sermon today. And there are a hundred sermons inside of this sermon. I'm only going to pull out three things that I want you to see in this text today. So if you're taking notes, I want to show you a biblical view of history. I want to show you a biblical view of history that points to Jesus. And I want to show you a biblical view of history that points to Jesus and demands a response from you. So the first thing I want you to see is the need for and the impact of a biblical view of history. Now, what we have in the text here is almost certainly just a a condensed version of Paul's actual sermon. But I want you to notice in verses 17 through 22 how Paul is always keeping God at the center of every historical event that he mentions. Look at verse 17. He says, The God of the people of Israel, God chose our fathers. This is a reference back to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And all the Jews there and the instructed Gentiles present would understand who he was talking about. But God chose them. Verse 17, he made, God made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt. And this is a reference back to when Israel began to grow into a great nation. And it was God who led them out of the country. So you see, God is a subject always. Verse 18, he endured their conduct for the next 40 years. God is the one Enduring conduct, which is the years of of wilderness where they left Egypt and wandered out into the desert uh, as they were being led into the promised land. Land. Look at verse 19. God overthrew seven nations in Canaan, and God gave their land to his people as their inheritance, which is a reference to Joshua. Verse 20. After this, God gave them judges until the time of Samuel the prophet, which is, if you're going back into your Old Testament, that's Joshua and, and judges and 1st and 2nd Samuel. Verse 21 and 22. Then the people asked for a king, and God gave them Saul. And after removing Saul, he made David. And he testified concerning David. I've got a a son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, and he's going to do everything that I want him to do, which is the 80 years of the monarchy. Do you see what Paul has as he looks back through history? His perspective is not that a litany of events that mankind has brought about. It's a litany of events that God has orchestrated and led. That's a biblical view of history. When Paul looks back at history, he sees God at the center. He sees God doing it. He says God is the author of the play that we call the universe. He sees God as the center of the meaning of the universe. So the world will tend to look back at history and record the actions of humanity. But Paul looks back at history and he declares God to be the orchestrator of all the actions of humanity. It's always a case of God calling, God moving, God saving, God delivering. Now, at one level, like it's it's just helpful to have a um, a very just a good proper understanding of history. It's just it's just history is just good for you. It's just good for your heart. I had my friend in high school, really good friend who was was Jewish, and uh, his name was Kevin Levingston. in little in Cleveland, Mississippi. There were just enough of a Jewish population to have their own uh, uh, their own temple, and they, it was so. I had a, I had some Jewish friends, and so Kevin. Was so smart. Oh my gosh, one of the smartest guys I knew. If he had, a, he had a bent for, for for pop music, and for and for actually playing music. He was an incredible pianist, but he had this bent for pop music. And so he he took his intelligence and his love of music, and he merged it together into a science fair experiment. How many of you did science fair experiments growing up? You did science fair, yeah, yep, yeah, great, great, good. So this is you can imagine the scenario. So instead of you know breaking out beakers and and test tubes and things like that, Kevin's like, I got an idea. I'm going to take Billy Joel's song, We Didn't Start the Fire. We didn't start the fire. You know what I'm talking about? It was always... Okay, good. I'll stop singing then since you know what it is. And uh, and he's like, I'm going to take all the historical events that are listed in that song, and I'm going to turn it into a multiple, multiple choice test, and I'm going to quiz everybody in the high school to see how well they do with regard to, that's just modern history, right? So it starts off with Harry Truman back in the 40s, and it takes you just about to, see, you know, Sally Ride, uh, The you know who Sally Ride was? I'm going to test you really quick. That's right, the first American female astronaut in this space. That's right, very good. And I'm going to test them uh, on everything in between. Um, so I don't, I don't remember the details of his findings, and we're connected on Facebook, but I felt like it would be weird to ask him about that. But I do remember... Like, it was bad. Uh, I could not define many people in this list. And so, which, go, which is a testimony to the fact that most people's understanding of history starts like the day they were born, right? If you go back to the day you are born, that's kind of all you really understand, really grasp when it comes to history. So as valuable as having a truly robust historical perspective is it is far more valuable to understand that history really is God's story and this is what Paul is at pains to explain now for sure Paul's immediate audience would have taken all this as a given there was a synagogue full of nodding Jewish people in this moment while Paul is dictating the Old Testament to them but we can't take that for granted anymore To the degree that it cares to do so, the majority of humanity looks back to history and interprets events as if man were at the center. And the result of doing that is hubris and implosion. But if we will go back in history and look at God at the center, we get a totally different result, a totally different impact. A biblical view of history makes much of God and less of man. A biblical view of history leads me to become poor in spirit. A biblical view of history breaks my heart for humanity. A biblical view of history draws me closer to God for comfort and answers. The biblical view of history humbles humanity and makes us more receptive to who God is and His will. A biblical view of history leads us to take risks for the good of humanity and the glory of God so that those coming behind us can have a better history. So like Paul, we need to have a robust historical perspective, but one that keeps God at the center, because history is truly His. Do you believe that? Do you believe that the events from creation coming to consummation are being orchestrated by a sovereign, loving, providential, holy God? And if you believe that, your worldview will be completely different than those who do not. And if you will have a biblical view of history, you will see that it finds its pinnacle in the person of Jesus. If you seek this, what you're going to find is that everything from creation to consummation is about Jesus. Look at what Paul does in the next section of his sermon. Look at verse 23. Paul says, from this man, that's David and David's descendants, he, as God has promised, God brought to Israel the Savior, Jesus. Paul draws a straight line from Abraham. To Jesus. A biblical view of history has Jesus at its center. And so that we don't miss it, Paul draws out the specifics in his sermon. Look at verse 24. He mentions the ministry of John the Baptist. Verses 27 and 28. He hits the crucifixion of Jesus. Verse 29. The death and burial of Jesus. Verses 30 through 31. The witnessed resurrection of Jesus. So it's not... Just that history is pointing to it. Paul is going to great lengths to make sure you and I understand that the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is actual history. Now, this is huge. We 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 you might take this for granted, but it's it's life altering. What this means is that Christianity isn't just a philosophy. It's not just an ethical code, even though it has those things. Christianity is a proclamation of facts that concern what God actually did in history. What that means is that Christianity isn't flexible. It's not not malleable. It's not moldable. It's not it's not that slime or that clay that your five-year-old gets for Christmas that ruins all the fabrics in your home. You know what I'm saying? Christianity is not that. We try to, you can try to remake it into something, something that's more palatable, something that's more acceptable to the contemporary around world around you, but it doesn't work. And the reason it doesn't work is because you can't change history that actually happened. So rather than trying to change them, we have to learn to conform our thinking and conduct these, and, and conduct to these facts, these things that actually took place, and then not to proclaim them as a church, not, not to proclaim our own ideas, but to proclaim these facts. And, or doesn't have this view that, of, the, of the history of the world and who God is and what he's doing. It's totally life-altering. Alistair Begg says... We find Christ in all of scriptures. In the Old Testament, he is predicted. In the Gospels, he is revealed. In Acts, he is preached. In the Epistles, he is explained. And in Revelation, he is expected. There's a biblical view of history, and all of it is pointing to Jesus, who actually lived, actually died, was actually resurrected, and the implications are actual and firm today. And that requires a response. If all that is true, then it requires a response from us, and it required a response from Paul's audience. Look at verse 38 and 39 of chapter 13. Look Look how Paul ends his sermon. He says, Therefore, let it be known to you, brothers and sisters, that through this man forgiveness of sins is being proclaimed to you, in verse 39, Everyone who believes is justified through him from everything that you could not be justified from through the law of Moses. And I'm realizing in my manuscript that I've just written down, say some things about forgiveness of sin and say some things about justification. So let me do that. Okay. so I don't have so here's I want to take you back to our sermon several weeks ago from Hebrews chapter 10 where we talked about the goats. Remember the goats? If you were here, we talked about goats and we talked about the Old Testament rite of sacrifice on the Day of Atonement, where Aaron would have two goats outside, and one he would sacrifice um, for uh, inside, he would sacrifice it on the outside. It, and the blood of this animal would be taken inside the temple and sprinkled on the, to the, left of the to the east side of the altar and on the altar itself. And the blood from that spotless animal was given in in that in that moment of ceremony, as a um, as blood payment for the forgiveness of sin for all of israel, all of Israel, and then he would come out and he would lay hands on the other goat and he would pray, and he would confess all of the sin of Israel, and somebody would take that goat after that and walk it out into the wilderness into the land of abandonment, and and the goat would never come back, so the symbol there is that Payment for sin has been issued and that the sin that has been forgiven and forgotten and never to be held against you ever again. And all of it, none of, it, none of that was actually taking place. It was all a picture. It was, it was a foreshadowing of the death of Jesus where payment for sin would actually be paid and forgiveness of sin would actually be given because who is it that can forgive sin? The offended party. And so all of that was pointing to that moment. And so here's Paul standing in a Jewish synagogue and he says, it's because of the death of Jesus, it's because of the resurrection of Jesus that you actually have forgiveness of sin. It is proclaimed to you through his life, death, and resurrection. You can actually have it in him right here. And then he says... Everyone who believes, verse 39, who is justified through him from everything that you could not be justified through the law of Moses. This word justified, what does that mean? It means declared right in God's sight. So quick story. Uh, We just moved to Nashville for the second time, back to Franklin about nine years ago. And in that moment, Holly was pregnant with um, Abby Okay, when when we moved here. And um, we we lived in a neighborhood called Fieldstone Farms, and about two blocks from our house, walking easy walk was Hunter's Bend. It's still there. It's still there. Hunter's Bend Elementary School has not moved. It is still right there. So to get to our home, you would cut off of a main four lane highway, and you would turn into a four lane highway, a uh, you know, road into the neighborhood, and the school is to your left, and then you turn right to our house. So we had just we just moved into this home. And uh, so our van and our car were still on Eastern time. It said 4.30 in Holly's van. And she turned onto the road to go by the school and then get into our, our neighborhood. And, and she's like, man, why are, the, why are the school lights flashing? Why are the school's on lights? 4.30, why are the school's on? Why is that cop there? And, you know, and 25 miles an hour in a school zone is bad news. And so the cop followed Holly right into the neighborhood and pulled her over and gave her a ticket for speeding in a school zone, Okay. She's 430, you know, pregnant brain, all the things that come with that, like whatever. So, so we're talking about it. It's like, she's got a court date now. Like my, my like holy wife has a court date before a judge, right? And she's gotten this ticket for going 25 and a 15. Her clock said 430. She's pregnant. We had the whole story so that she could go before the judge and justify herself before him. And I did not go to court because I was not going to court. I had to take care of it. You know, I had other responsibilities as a man. But, um, you know, so Holly goes to court. And we did. We had the story like, uh, this, is, this is so forgivable. Like, this is not even funny, right? And do you remember what, what, he, what happened when you got there? This is the way you told me the story. So if I, this is wrong, if I mistell the story, Holly will correct me and all of us later. Okay, she'll, she'll tell it. She'll make it straight. She's, she was not the first person in court. There were person after person after person after person. And in every person, it was, uh, uh, Weston Wax, you are guilty of, you are ch- you're charged with this. How do you plead? There was no opportunity for any person to say, well, let me explain. Right? No one had the opportunity to justify himself or herself before the judge. Do you know what's incredible about the gospel? Is that the judge is the justifier. The judge says, everything about your life is guilty. Everything about it. But I'm going to accept Jesus' perfection on your behalf and declare you not guilty. He justifies you before me. Woo! That's incredible. That's incredible. Unless you're a Jewish person who loves the law. Unless you're a Jewish person who loves the religious system. And they did. Boy, they did. Look at verse 46, verse 45. When the Jews saw the crowds flocking to the gospel instead of to the law, the Jews who were made to be a nation of light to all the nations saw all the nations gathering to the gospel instead of to the law, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what Paul was saying and they insulted him because if you can't you know, win on the merits, you just attack the character of the person who's got the better merits. And so Paul and Barnabas boldly replied, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first, but since you reject it, and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, we are turning to the Gentiles. In verse 48, when the Gentiles heard this, they rejoiced and they honored the word of the Lord and all who had been appointed to eternal life believed and the word of the Lord spread through the whole region. Because forgiveness of sin and being in a right state with God was a beautiful thing for a person a Gentile in this case, who understood that there's nothing they could do to actually make themselves right with God. You know, I think, I looked at this whole chapter of Acts 13, and I think it serves as a microcosm of a life lived for the gospel. Most of us are not Paul or Barnabas, and I don't mean that we are not going to just that we will, and I don't mean that we will all give the rest of our lives to multiple missionary journeys. We talked about that in Sunday school this morning. That's, so I don't look at this chapter and say it's a microcosm of our lives for that reason. I say it because if we have a biblical view of history, if we have a biblical view of history and see Jesus at the center of it, and if we respond in agreement to it, then our lives very much will look like that of Paul or Barnabas or the other men on this journey. In that, number one, we will stake our lives on the gospel. It will consume every aspect of our life. It will inform and persuade every aspect. It will cost us something. There will be sacrifices made for it. And I love verse 52, 51 and 52. Look what Paul says. Paul and Barnabas, Luke says, they shook the dust off their feet, went to Iconium, and the disciples were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. So when when you see a biblical history, see it point to Jesus and stake your life on it, you will find a peace. You will find a joy as you... As, um, as God works in you and through you and makes much of himself through you. That is what you gain. So I would ask you this morning to take hold of it. Be like the Gentiles in this passage and hear the gospel and respond. See the biblical view of history and believe, trust in Jesus and have your life look like the life of these men. You will stake your life on it. You will... It will inform and persuade you. It will just absolutely infiltrate everything that you are and everything that you do on every day. It will cost you something and you will gain everything.